Please take a seat. And I have my welcome. My name is Paul Rees. It's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor. Uh, let's turn to God in prayer as we come to his word. Oh, great God, we confess that so often our hearts get absorbed by the things of the world, by worshipping things that we should not worship. And yet you are our only hope. And so we draw near to you now, the living God, and ask that you'd meet with each one of us. Reveal yourself in all your glory and all your goodness, we ask. Lord, that we may turn from false worship to worship you alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when you feel stuck in life, what do you do? When you feel anxious, where do you turn for comfort? What helps you get through the day? What absorbs your heart and imagination? What is it that causes you to fear? These sort of questions can help us identify what it is we really worship. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, defines an idol as anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. See, the problem with the human heart, as John Calvin once wrote, is that it is a perpetual factory of idols. Uh, we can make an idol of approval, of security, of relationships, of success, of wealth, of food, of drink, of comfort. The list kind of just goes on and on. The human heart is a, is a perpetual factory of idols. An idol is anything that takes the place of God as the most important focus in our lives. And so returning to the book of Exodus, and you, you want to open your Bibles back to Exodus chapter 32, and you'll find that on page 90 in the church Bibles, Exodus chapter 32. As we come back to this chapter, we see Israel requesting and then worshipping a man-made God. And instead of us writing this off this morning as a primitive response, we need to heed the warning of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that was just read to us, that these things were written down for us as a warning to us. We can set our hearts on evil things as they did. We can become idolaters. We need to heed the warning to flee from idolatry. And so we need to pay close attention this morning to Exodus chapter 32. And I want us to see three things this morning. I want us to see the scandal of idolatry. I want us to see its serious consequences. And I also want to see what hope there might be in this chapter for idolaters. 
So let's consider first the, the scandal that these people were idol lovers. Consider the request in, in chapter 32, verse 1. They, they gathered round Aaron and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. Now the classic love story goes something like this. Uh, two people meet, they fall in love, they get married, and they live happily ever after. And we've been looking kind of at this classic story writ on a big canvas in the book of Exodus of God who showers his love on a slave nation in Egypt. And like the best um, adventure romances, God the hero steps into the lives of these enslaved people and rescues them. He defeats the gods of Egypt. He humbles Pharaoh and he liberates them from their slavery. He brings them through the Red Sea. He destroys the, uh, the army that was chasing to enslave them again. And he provides for them in the desert. And at Mount Sinai, God proposes to his people. He will be their God and they will be his people if they accept this marriage covenant proposal that you can read about in chapters 20 to 24. A crystal clear way that God laid out the expectations of how this relationship would work. Moses conducted the marriage ceremony. He, he tells the people the entire covenant and uh, asks them, will you take God to be your God? And they say, well, we do. And after the marriage ceremony, uh, they, there comes the joy and privilege of, of living together. And Moses went up Mount Sinai and received the covenant that they just agreed to engraved in stone tablets. And he received the instruction of this tabernacle tent of how God was going to dwell amongst them. This is how they were going to live together. God would dwell amongst his people in this tabernacle tent as they wandered through the wilderness. And against this glorious background, this joyful picture of this new kind of special covenant relationship, chapter 32 is just a sickening moment. It just slaps you in the face. See, Moses is up on the mountain getting these incredible instructions of how God is going to live in this beautiful tent amongst his people. And what's happening below? They're already constructing an idol. Already, these people are idle lovers. The scandal of this situation is, is like the, during the honeymoon, the husband coming back to find that his bride has invited another lover into his bed. That's kind of the language that you find in these chapters. If you just turn to chapter 34 and verses um, 13, you'll see that God gives commands to the Israelites about what they should do when they enter into the promised land and that they should destroy all the Canaanite idols that they find there. So look at uh, chapter 34, verse 13. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Be careful not to make treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. 
The Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, this is not something we tend to rethink about very much. But this is a revelation of God to us that we need to pay very close attention to. God uses very strong emotional language to help us to see the horror of what's happening here in chapter 32. And what God's people need to realize is that their God is a jealous God. Now, this is not the sort of jealousy that tends to overtake us, where we kind of want what we do not have and we hate the person who has it. This is the zealous desire to protect a love relationship that already exists. You know, the classic marriage vows say something like this, forsaking all others, I'll be faithful to you. A loving husband and wife have an appropriate desire for their relationship to be an exclusive one to each other. They're rightly jealous of each other's love and affection. And this golden calf incident, well, this is, this is an act of spiritual adultery. This is, this is scandalous, my friends. Only a few weeks before, they'd heard the Ten Commandments. But now, in a moment, they kind of break the first three. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. So turn back to chapter 32, verse 1. Look at what they said to Aaron again in verse 1. Come, make us gods who will go before us. And look what they say to Aaron in verse, uh, after, um, after Aaron unveils the idol in verse 4. Then they said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. They reject monotheism. They decide to hedge their bets with additional gods to worship. Now their intention was that Aaron would make them some alternative to the God who had revealed himself to them. Now how could they do that? How could they engage in such a a great sin, as it's described in verses 21 and 31. Where did this great sin come from? Well, from within themselves. It's their suggestion. Moses, their leader, had gone. Uh, as the weeks went by, um, he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, we read. As the weeks went by, and it turns into a month perhaps, they became impatient. How long would they have to stay in the wilderness next to this mountain? When will they get to the promised land? And they begin to distrust God. Verse 1, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, they're already dismissing him. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. They're growing impatient. They're impatient, waiting on a revealed faith of an invisible God. They want something a bit more tangible, something a bit quicker. They had been taken out of Egypt, but Egypt was still very much inside of their hearts. They wanted gods they could see, like the ones back in Egypt. They wanted to just be like the world that they left. Now, many different Egyptian gods had the shape of, of cows. Now, obviously, that's not a problem for us. We're not in the business of making cows, except for the fact that we still make cows. I couldn't believe this when I went to Wall Street in New York. Uh, of course, when the stock market is uh, surging forwards, it's called uh, a bull market. And uh, in this heart of capitalism and finance, they've constructed this bronze bull. 
kind of symbolizing, I don't know, wealth, is it? Nothing wrong with money or possessions except when we idolize and worship them as God. Nothing wrong with sex, but the huge pornography business and the rise in sexual abuse tells us that we're in a culture that worships eroticism. Nothing wrong with having a job and wanting to be successful or achieve academic success, but when we elevate our success above our children and above our marriage and above God, we've replaced God with an idol. And notice from verse 1 how foolish our thinking becomes when we give way to our idolatry. Make us gods. How ridiculous is that? Make us gods. Have you thought about how daft that is? Aaron takes their gold earrings and he makes an idol cast in the shape of a calf. What hope or benefit can possibly be gained from something we make and shape? with our hands. What use is a golden, lifeless cow? An actual cow can actually give you milk and be kind of useful. A, a golden, lifeless cow that cannot move. What, what, what influence is that going to have on the cosmos, on our lives? And guess what? Uh, people um, superstitiously uh, rub a certain part of this bull to give them, uh, I don't know, increased chances of um, financial success. How bizarre we are. How foolish we are. To reject the God who has eternally existed, who created billions of galaxies with billions of stars with his word, and, and instead we idolize the stuff that he has made, science and politics and philosophy and art and money and sex and alcohol and sport and fame. How foolish. And the tragedy for the people of Israel is that they were engaging with the living and true God. Yeah, look at verse 15. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. Now look at verse 16. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. The true and living God was really at work amongst them. They could have a genuine relationship with him. Uh, he was bringing down the commandments that was the basis of their covenant relationship. He was bringing down all the great instructions of the tabernacle that they were going to make. All they had to do was wait patiently just a little bit longer and they could enjoy relationship with the God who'd set them free, the God who had loved them and provided for them and guided them, the God who had promised to give them the promised land to enjoy, and they exchanged the glory of God for images of animals. And we too are tempted in times of hardship to distrust the living God. We are tempted to turn to other options that we think will give us security and hope. And it's equally true for, for leaders. See how quickly Aaron broke the second and third commandment. You know, the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous 
God. And so they crowded around Aaron, urging him to make them other gods. And what did Aaron do? He didn't put up much of an argument, did he? No pleading against this obvious disobedience. He didn't say he needed to pray about it. He didn't say, well, I need to talk to the other elders. And he doesn't refer them back to God's commandments. He just says, give me a gold jewelry. He kind of jumps to it, doesn't he? And look how active he is in the process. Verse 4. He took what they handed him. He made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And when Aaron saw, verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Now, Aaron didn't want to be involved in anything as crude as worshipping different gods. Which god do you worship, Aaron? Well, the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, he would say. But he wanted to worship God in his own terms. He wanted to worship a God fashioned by his own hands, by his own imagination. And he literally does that out of gold. This is a colossal failure of spiritual leadership, isn't it? Look at what Moses says when he confronts him in verse 21. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such a great sin? Well, they crowded around him. Incredibly strong peer pressure. He was swayed by the crowd. He tried to mix true worship of God with altars and offerings mixed with idolatry. The associate pastor decided it'd be okay to change the worship surface to fit in with the desires of the people rather than the clear teaching of God. And notice, he tried to pretend that he had no part in it in the end. I mean, it's almost comical, isn't it? As he tries to shift the blame. I threw in the gold and out popped a calf. I mean, what could I do? It was a miracle. And things quickly got out of hand. This is golden calf religion. It doesn't have a holy God. It's not constrained by God's revealed word. Instead of being God-centered, it panders to whatever we want. And because of our fallenness, what we want is unrestrained sensuality and pursuing our appetites. And if that can be an excuse of fulfilling religious duty, all the better. Look at verse 6. So the next day the people rose up early. They were keen to be at it. They sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And that word in the Hebrew implies it got pretty wild. This is not a keli. This is something far worse than that. Now, golden calf religion is alive and well in the West today. Bishops, ministers, synods, assemblies, they are throwing away revelation, what God has revealed in his word, and they're leading the revelry around the golden cow of their own custom-made Christianity. People want a religion that will allow them to satisfy their own sinful desires. And so they're jettisoning the word of God. Instead, they want a religion that 
fits in with the world and, and it pleases us. The sin of Aaron's idolatry is a constant temptation and we're observing it in our nation even at this time. People might not make little golden calves, but they come out with statements like this. I don't like to think of God as, as a judge who punishes sin. We like a God who basically says, everything I do is great. You're nice, God's nice, be nice. Let's call that religion. That's where we're at today. We create a God of our own imaginations, a Jesus of our own heads, rather than the God who's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ that we find in the word of God. And so Paul warned the church in Corinth, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. It's scandalous. And it's serious. Look at the consequences of this idolatry in verses 7 to 10. There's two clear consequences here. Firstly, alienation. Verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because... Your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. God has seen and heard it all. Your people, Moses. Their sin had caused separation. And see, when Moses comes down the mountain with the tablets that God had inscribed with his own finger, and he smashes them at the base of the mountain, he's being prophetic. He's symbolizing what has really happened in the events of the golden calf. They had broken God's covenant. It was destroyed. There was alienation. And secondly, there was anger. Look at verse 9. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. This is how serious the sin of idolatry is. It evokes the anger of God. It's an affront to God. And he basically says to Moses, look, get out of the way and I'll wipe them out. This is how serious the sin of idolatry is. And the question this morning is this, is there any hope for idolaters? That's what I need to hear. It's what we need to hear, isn't it? Because if we're honest, we know that we have, God has not always been at the center of our life and worship. And we may say one thing at church, but in our actions in our lives, well, we're guilty of worshiping other things, other people, our own desires. We've been guilty about disobeying God's commands and breaking his law. And the question is, when I disobey God, is there any hope? So let me, as I close, bring three points of hope out of this section. Firstly, there's hope in a mediator. Look at verse 10. Now leave me alone so my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. Verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. 
When God asked Moses to step aside, it's not God's sort of saying, it's not God's not being petulant. It's actually inviting Moses to stay there and to keep interceding. Moses, it's only you that's stopping this now. And he's inviting Moses to intercede for him. And Moses is such an extraordinary leader. See, what dictator wouldn't have jumped for this opportunity? Ditching all these troublesome people and you being the cloning mechanism of a brand new nation all in your name? How amazing would that be? The dictators would love that, but not Moses. Moses saw this as an invitation to act as an intercessor, as a mediator. He sought the favor of the Lord his God. You see, Moses actually knew God. He knew the character of God. And so he engages in this extraordinary prayer because Moses knows that there's hope in a jealous God. The God who is jealous is the basis of our hope. Let's think about that. What a prayer this is. He goes on the basis of God's character who is jealous for his own glory. Firstly, notice that Moses appeals to God's fatherly care. Verse 11, Moses kind of puts it back on God. Look at this, verse 11. Why should your anger burn against your people? God says to Moses, look, it's your, look what your people have done. And Moses says, no, they're, they're your people. He remembers how God affectionately described them to Pharaoh. My firstborn son. He appeals to God's fatherly care. Remember, these are your people. He appeals to God's investment in this people so far. Verse 11, second half of verse 11. Whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Look at all you've done already, God. The investment you've made in this people. He appeals to God for the sake of his own name and reputation. Look at verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them from the face of the earth? Now Moses couldn't bear for God's name to be sullied in that way. Here is a wonderful truth to give us hope that God is jealous. Jealous for his own name. And so Moses says, well remember your love. Remember your purpose. Remember your reputation. And on that basis, he makes us appeal. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. And do not bring disaster on your people. It's an appeal to compassionate mercy. A compassionate mercy that's made on the fact that God is a promise-keeping God. Look at verse 13. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. To whom? You swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Perhaps that's a verse that may give hope to Israel today as well. Remember your faithfulness, O God. You made those promises to Abraham, remember? You're a faithful God. You keep your promises. This is the reason for hope for idolaters. God did not start this salvation plan because of our worthiness. 
And so he's not going to stop because of our unworthiness. Our salvation rests solely on the character of the faithful, promise-keeping God. A God who has made awesome promises to us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the good news that we have in him. Verse 14, Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And the third basis of hope in this text is the hint at this. There's hope in a substitutionary atonement. So Moses goes back down the mountain to deal with the chaos. The, the, the idol is totally destroyed. That's the way to deal with idols. Uh, don't put it in the cupboard so to, it can be retrieved later. It is cremated. It's ground down. Uh, they're made to drink it. It, it. There's nothing left. They've wasted all that gold jewelry. It could have been on their ears, making them look pretty. Now it's, it's all wasted. The camp's in chaos. Uh, there's a severe discipline that takes place to restore peace and order. It doesn't seem like everybody in Israel is involved in this calf worship. There's about 3,000 dead by the end. It was a much larger people that perhaps weren't involved. But still, a holy God is yet to respond to this offensive spiritual adultery, to this great sin. What can be done? Well, look at verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. What a magnificent mediator Moses was. What a heart for God. What a heart for his people. But the best that Moses could say was, perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. It was rejected by God, not because the principle was wrong. It's just that Moses was totally inadequate as a substitute for the people. But of course, today, our hope as idolaters rests in a better mediator, the sinless Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. His death on the cross is fully sufficient. He came to be the substitute for sinners. He came to make atonement for our sins, for our idolatry. So listen to what Peter says to uh, the Christians uh, in uh, the area we know today as Turkey. He himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. What wonderful hope there is in the mediator the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's have a time of reflection, shall we? Let's examine our own hearts. Let me ask a few questions and you can examine your own heart and then we're going to have a, a time of responding in a prayer of confession that will be on the screen. What have we turned to for comfort in our anxiety in this past week? 
what have we relied upon to get us through the past week? What has absorbed our hearts and imaginations? if you feel the need to confess your sins we're going to put a prayer that we can use on the screen just about squeezed it in why don't you join with me in prayer let's say this together almighty God father of our Lord Jesus Christ maker of all things judge of all people we acknowledge and confess the grievous sins and wickedness which we have committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your anger and indignation against us. We earnestly repent and are deeply sorry for these our wrongdoings. The memory of them weighs us down. The burden of them is too great for us to bear. Have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past and grant that from this time onwards we may always serve and please you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. We invite the... Musicians to come up. And our closing song is a prayer for a closer walk with God.